right, let's go to John chapter 11 today. John chapter 11, we're going to find the seventh miracle that's recorded in the book of John, or as John likes to call them, signs. And as we talked about before, signs point to a destination. And I'll remind you of what John writes at the end of the book of John, John chapter 20. This is how he summarizes. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. In other words, John knew as the last one to be writing a gospel account that there were all these other miracle stories that were true that he didn't need to record. They had already been told before. But, he says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so we come now to John chapter 11. And this miracle I want us to see this morning, I want us to focus for this morning's message really on one conversation that takes place, and that's the conversation between Martha and Jesus. And I want us to see the, the, the way that Jesus replies, the way that Jesus responds to her questions, to her doubts, uh, to her fears. And so let's begin in John chapter 11, verse 1. Well, let's read down through verse 5. It says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. That note that they sent to Jesus simply said, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Jesus had had a long-standing relationship with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He had spent time in their home. We read of it in Luke chapter 10, verse 38. You might remember, this is the Mary and Martha. You remember that story where there's the busy-bodied Martha who's running around making all the preparations while Mary is spending the time at Jesus' feet? That's this family. And we read in John chapter 12, the next chapter over, is that story that John refers to here of when Mary washed Jesus' feet with, with oil using her hair. He anointed Jesus' feet. And so when I, when I read this request, when I see what she says here, Jesus, the one whom you love is ill, it's really not so much of a request as it is a statement. As it is that they assumed that Jesus would know what to do. They assumed that if they simply made it known to him that Lazarus was ill, there would be no need for manipulation. There would be no need for begging. There would be no need for twisting an arm. There was a confidence in their request. There was a belief, a trust in Jesus' care and in Jesus' compassion. It was as if they were saying, we have no need to beg. We have no need to plead. We simply need to let him know, and he'll know what to do. Well, do you have that kind of trust in God's love? Sometimes I feel like when we pray, we, need, we feel like we need to tell God what to do. God, we need you to do this. But I think this is a great example of that trust and that faith uh, that we don't need to necessarily fill in the blanks. We need to simply lift our concerns to the Lord, and he will know what to do. And so do you have that kind of confidence in Christ, in his compassion for you? Do you have that kind of faith that God hears you and that he knows what to do in response? Now listen to Jesus' response. 
He says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus knew that Lazarus was going to die, at least for a time. He, he knew that was going to take place, but he also knew that Lazarus, in this case, was not going to stay dead. He knew what he was going to do. And so he says here that this illness will not lead to death, but notice the, the second half of that statement. He said, it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. It is for the glory of God. You know, oftentimes we struggle to see how sickness, how pain, how suffering could possibly be used for the glory of God. I mean, how could God receive glory by watching one of his children suffer? By watching one of his children waste away in pain and suffering because of cancer or because of some disease or some disability? You know, Jesus had the same thing to say about the blind man in John chapter 9. If you remember, uh, we studied that one here recently when the disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he had been born blind? Jesus, making reference to his blindness, said, he said, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And so he's saying there that that blindness was given so that God could do a work. Have you ever paused to think about how God could be glorified in our suffering? Have you ever wondered how God could display his works in our pain and in our sickness? You know, it might be easy to see how that could work if that pain, if that sickness, if that disease is healed, maybe even miraculously. You've probably heard stories about people who, who have been diagnosed with cancer or some, something, and they go into the doctor and they do another scan and they say, it's just not there anymore. And we know that it's a miracle. The doctor will say, oh, someone must have made a mistake, but we know that that's God answering prayer. And we can fully understand. That's simple to understand how God gets the glory in those situations. But what about if that sickness lingers for years and years? What about if it really does lead to death? Can God be glorified through that? Absolutely. Maybe even more so than if a healing takes place. But only if we allow God to work both in us and through us in those things. You know, you know it's, they seem con contradicting. You know, when we think of suffering and good. They don't seem to fit together in the same sentence, do they? It doesn't seem to make sense to think how suffering could be good. And we might even wonder how a God that we call good could allow suffering to take place. Maybe that's a question that's popped into your mind. How could God be good if he allows these things to happen? But I think if that's the question we have, then maybe, just maybe, our definition of good is incomplete. Maybe we don't fully grasp what God means by good. This is what I mean. Think about it. You know, sometimes we think of good as being some, the absolute absence of any kind of pain or any kind of suffering. We say, well, that, that's good. But I think that's incorrect in a sense. Think about it like this. Imagine with me that, 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 that you were diagnosed with having a, a cancerous tumor 
and you needed to go to a doctor, to a surgeon to have that tumor removed. Now, it would be unreasonable for you to say that that surgeon was not good because he caused you pain in surgery. It would be unreasonable to say that he wasn't good because the incision hurt. It would be unreasonable to say that he wasn't good because the recovery was difficult. I mean, if that was your mindset, then the only good doctor would be the doctor that never did surgery. The only good doctor would be the doctor that pretended like nothing was wrong and just told you that, oh, you'll be okay. There's really nothing there. No, that's not good. No, what makes that surgeon good is if through the pain and through the suffering, he removes the sickness, the sickness inside, if he gets it all out. Because then, and only then, that surgeon has used the pain to bring about healing. And I believe that's what God does. You see, God most definitely uses our trials and most definitely uses our suffering to bring him out good in our life, to bring us closer to him, to to lead us to a place where we are more dependent upon him, where we have a greater faith in him, where we have a greater trust in him. It's like what Hudson Taylor, who was a missionary to China in the late 1800s, had to say. He said, trials afford God a platform for his working in our lives. Without them, I would never know how kind, how powerful, how gracious he is. You see, Jesus was about to use this event in the life of Mary and Martha and Lazarus to give them an even greater faith in him. He was about to push them to another level of faith, another level of trust as they walked through this moment of this this season of suffering. And I think he will do the same for us when we get to those moments of suffering if we'll continue to look to him and if we'll continue to trust him. And I think we can remember the same thing that that Mary and Martha needed to remember here. The fact that in verse 5, what does it say? Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. How could they trust? Why could they trust? Because Jesus loved. Because he cared. Because he would not abandon his child. And so we can trust because he loves us. Now we read here that Jesus waits for two days And then he tells his disciples that Lazarus has died, and then they depart for Bethany. And so let's skip ahead just a little bit in the story to verse 17. We're going to read down through verse 22. It says, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming... She went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. You ever had those times whenever um, your, your kids or your grandkids kept doing something, kept messing with something, and you told them, now you need to stop that. You're going to hurt yourself. You're going to pinch your fingers in the door or something like that. Don't be slamming the door. And then they, do, then they hurt themselves doing it. And what do you want to say in that moment? If you would have just listened to me, none of this would have happened. 
Happens on a regular basis at our house. You know, Martha's words sound an awful lot like that to me. She looked at Jesus and she said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. There's a little bit of rebuke in her words. I mean, she was angry. She was understandably upset because her, her brother had died. She was disappointed that Jesus didn't get word fast enough and that he didn't make it there in time. Is it was as if she was saying, God, where were you? Jesus, where were you? If you would have just heard my cries, none of this would have happened and we wouldn't be going through this. Now she backs off a little bit in verse 22. She says, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Maybe she realized how harsh she was being. Maybe she realized that she was being a little rude there. But I believe, Mary, Mar excuse me, I believe Martha was guilty of at least two mistakes here. First, she attempted to limit the power of Jesus in two ways, time and place. She believed that Jesus could not have done anything from a distance, that he had to make it to Lazarus' bedside in order to do anything. She didn't, uh, maybe she didn't know about when Jesus had healed that official son over in John chapter 4, and he had done it from a distance. Remember, the official came to Jesus, and he said, your son will live, and the son was miles away, and they go home, and sure enough, the son had lived. Martha didn't know that. She didn't understand that. She thought Jesus had to physically be right there. And she also didn't think that Jesus could do anything now because Lazarus was already dead. She thought the case was closed, that, the, that there was nothing that could be done, that the tomb had been sealed, and it was over. Game over. We might as well go on. But you know what's interesting? Why would Jesus wait? You know, it says that Jesus waited two days before he came to Bethany. Kind of, kind of odd, some even debate whether or not Jesus was waiting so that Lazarus would die before he got there. And, and as I was studying through this, that was kind of a debate in my mind as to what, why did Jesus do what he did? I mean, did Jesus intentionally wait when he heard that Lazarus was sick so that Lazarus would die first? I don't think that was the case. It says in John chapter 10, verse 40, that Jesus was on the other side of the Bethany in the area where John the Baptist had been doing his ministry. And the best that we can guess, it was about a day's journey from where Jesus was to the town of Bethany. Now, we're told in verse 17 that Jesus arrived on the fourth day that Lazarus had been in the tomb. Four days. Now, in that time, in that culture, in that region, when someone would die, you generally were buried on the day you died or the day after you died. Because, the, because of the, the humidity, because of the, the temperature, because there was no, they didn't embalm like we would do today. And so they needed to get that body into a tomb quickly because it would begin to decompose very quickly. And so, and so if we do a little bit of math, we know that Jesus' journey was a day away. I believe that by the time the messenger ever got to Jesus, Lazarus was really already dead. And Jesus already knew that because he was omniscient. That sometime after the messenger was sent to Jesus, Lazarus died before the messenger even got there. You see, because, because if you think about it this way, on the day that Lazarus died, he was buried. That would have been, okay, so day number one in the tomb, Jesus got the word. Day two and three in the tomb, Jesus was waiting. Day four in the tomb, Jesus arrived because it was a day travel. And so, no, Jesus didn't wait to put them through some kind of pain to make Lazarus die so that he could do a miracle. Lazarus was already dead. 
But then again, why would he still wait? There was a belief during that time, um, the Jews had come up with this idea, it's not in Scripture, uh, that, uh, that when a soul died, when a person died, that the soul would linger around the body for three days. Uh, they believed that that soul would be, would be lingering there looking for an opportunity to re-enter the body. But on the fourth day, when that soul began to see the, the skin turning gray and the body began to de decompose, that then that soul would depart and leave to God, knowing for sure that the body was surely dead. And so maybe just maybe Jesus waited till the fourth day to arrive, so there would be no question whatsoever that Lazarus really was dead. That there would be no doubt in anyone's mind that Lazarus was most definitely dead. So Jesus felt the need to wait. Now, sometimes when we pray in our suffering and trials, we pray and we ask God to answer in some way, and God doesn't always answer in our time. And we might become like Martha here, and we might get angry at God. God, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you act? Why didn't you heal? Why, why didn't you move when we needed you to move? But we need to remember two things. We need to remember that God's delays are not always final. They're not always final. Just because God doesn't respond on the schedule in which we think he should respond doesn't mean he's not going to respond. We, we might think of it as we might see a lack of movement. We might think that God is ignoring us, but in reality, maybe God is doing something in the background. I think about... Um, with our boys and the adoption that we went through, we had waited, gosh, five years before we even started to adopt and then two more years. So seven years of praying for God to give us kids. Praying, God, give us children. Please give us children. Please give us children. And, and, I, and I also think about this. We found out that we were getting our boys, I think it was like three weeks before they were born. And so God had already answered our prayer Nine months before we ever met our boys, when he placed them in that mother's womb, we just didn't know it. We kept praying. We kept doubting. God, when are you ever going to do this? God had already answered. We had just hadn't gotten word yet. God had already worked the miracle. We just needed to have faith and trust his timing. Because God's delays aren't always final. God's never late. And we also need to remember this, that God's answers are always perfect. You know, we are not God. I am not God. As smart as I might think I am, I am not God. And I might have this mental picture of how God needs to swoop down and save the day and do it in this particular way based on my own ideas, but I can't understand all that God's doing. And what I might think of as perfect might not necessarily be what God sees as perfect on an eternal scheme, on the grand scheme of things. What might be perfect in my life might not be perfect in someone else's life. And so God, in his infinite wisdom, knows how to work through those things. And we simply need to trust that whatever God does, it's in his perfect will. And it will come exactly when he wants it to come. Now, I think Martha made one more mistake here. Look in verse 23. Verse 23, this is how Jesus responds. So Martha's made her accusation. She says, if you had been there, my brother wouldn't have died. But I know that God will give you anything he wants that you ask for. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, 
I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And so Jesus is telling her plainly, look, your brother's about to rise. You're about to watch a miracle take place, but she misses it. She doesn't grasp what he's talking about. I mean, she's just said, I know God's going to give you whatever, whatever you ask for. And then he tells her and she says, I, I know what's going to happen on the last day. She didn't believe that Jesus' promise to her in that moment was for that moment. She didn't believe that answer was for today. She thought that answer was going to have to come in some distant future. Now, I don't think Martha had any clue what Jesus was about to do. I think she was clueless in, in thinking that Jesus was about to bring him back from the dead. And the reason why I think that is, look down to verse 38. I want us to see the, what Martha's reaction was when Jesus opens the tomb. Verse 38, it says, And Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Now, I think Martha was so overcome with emotion that the last thing she wanted to do was to open that tomb and to see her dead brother again. She didn't want to be reminded about the fact that his body was laying in a tomb decaying, but she had no clue what Jesus was about to do. She just wanted that tomb to remain shut. And in doing so, I think she was guilty of this of believing that God's promises were not for her, or at least not today. Jesus had just told her what he was about to do. And she thought it was for some distant, distant future, but Jesus meant, no, today, I'm about to bring your brother back. And we have to be careful that we don't make the same mistake. In believing that God's promises aren't always for us, and believing they, that if they are for us, they're just for the future. You know, sometimes we may be guilty of looking at the Scripture and saying, well, I know that the Bible says blank, but it just never seems to work out for me like that. I know the Bible says blank, but I'm not holding out too much hope that God's going to do anything. If you're a child of God, God's promises aren't just for a future day. They are for today. And they're not just for someone else. They are for you. Sometimes we can be guilty of forgetting God's promises. Like, for instance, we might forget that the promise that our sins have been permanently forgiven. And instead, we live with these burdens and we beat ourselves up over, over failing and sinning again. But we simply need to remember what Scripture says in John chapter 5, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. We might forget the, the, the promise in Scripture that Satan has already been defeated. But instead, we listen to those lies as he whispers in our ears and we fall back into temptation and we fall back into bondage to sin. But we need to remember what James chapter 4, verse 7 says. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That is a promise. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Promise from the Word of God for today. We might forget that Christ actually hears our cries and He intercedes for us. And so we might forget to pray. We might, think, we might allow prayer to become like something in the backseat of our lives, but we need to remember what, what Hebrews 4.16 says. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time. Of need. And so instead of doubting Christ's promises, 
We need to cling to those promises in faith and believe that God has given us, 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 those promises for today. Just listen to Jesus' next words, Matthew, or John chapter 11, 25. Let's listen to what Jesus says next to Martha. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into this world. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. You know, that little phrase there is really the climax of everything that has been taking place in the book of John to this point. Everything is pointing to this moment. If John is giving these miracles, these things, as a sign that points to the destination, all of those earlier signs were pointing to this one, that Jesus is declaring himself to be the very source of life, that he is the resurrection and the life. And not just some life in a distant heaven, but an eternal life that begins here and now. Just think about it. Materially, Jesus had given life to a bunch of pitchers of water and turned them into wine. Spiritually, Jesus had offered a new life to Nicodemus when he taught him in John chapter 3 about how he could be born again. Physically, he had given new life to a man who was born blind, to a man who was a, who was a, who was a paralyzed man, to a, uh, to, to a boy that was about to die. He had declared in John chapter 7 that those who received him out of them would come streams of living water. He had told them that he was the light of the world and any who believed in him would have the light of life within them. And then now he says, I am the resurrection and I am the life. The resurrection and the life. You see, I can cope with the difficulties of today because I know that my Lord is with me and that he gives me life. And no matter what tomorrow throws at me, I'm okay because the one who gives me life is with me. Death has already been defeated in my life because Jesus already beat the devil. And he already purchased my salvation. And so the devil has no claim on me. And so because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, I know that I will never die spiritually. And you can know that you will never die spiritually. And when your body does fail, if Christ has not come again by that point, that we'll simply be passing from this life into the next. A much better life. Jesus said there in that passage, he said, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And, whoever, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now, I think a simpler way to put this as to what Jesus is saying is he's saying is that those who have died in Christ physically are alive with him spiritually right now. They are in heaven today. With the Lord. That those who died, yet shall they live. And then I think what he's saying in the next statement is this it is those who are still alive on the day that Christ returns, they will never die, but will be ushered directly into heaven. What a promise. You know, it seems like as we've worked through these miracles, 
over the past seven weeks, eight weeks, there's a theme that keeps coming up again and again and again and again. Dealing with suffering. Dealing with pain. How to have faith. And so I ask you today as we come to this close, that lesson from Martha, are you trusting in the Lord's promises? Are you looking beyond your circumstances to Christ who works amidst the circumstances? Are you believing in faith that God can work all things together for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose? And are you trusting God's definition of good? Because his good is ultimately the good that I want. Would you pray with me? Father God, I pray that our response as a church would be the same as Martha here. That in the midst of her struggle, as she, as she mourned the loss of her brother, she looked at Jesus and she said, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. The one who has come into this world. And Father, because we confess that, we have nothing else to fear nothing else to worry about because you are in control and you have our best interest at heart and though we might walk through pain and we might walk through suffering God you have a purpose for that pain and suffering that those sickness might tear our bodies apart the cancer might spread death might come but we don't lose hope because you're a good God, a faithful God who carries us to the end and brings us into your presence. Father, I pray for each person in this room today. I don't know what the storm might be, what the, the, the suffering might be that they might be going through, but Father, I pray that today they would have faith in you, that they would hear these words, that they would not respond with anger or with frustration, even though we know that you're okay with our emotion, but instead they would respond with faith. They would trust you as, they, as you work through their life. Father, I pray at this time of invitation, if there be a soul here today who does not have eternal life through Jesus Christ, I pray that today would be the day they would make that decision to, to lay it all down and put their faith and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins making him the Lord and Savior of their life. And I pray that they would come down there in this invitation time so that they could hear more about the good news of the gospel of Jesus. Father, have your way with us in this time of invitation. And it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Just stand as we sing.